Welcome to the Free to Choose Media Podcast. In today's episode, Professor Rudolf A. Marcus, Arthur Ames Noyes, Professor of Chemistry at the California Institute of Technology, and Dr. George Ola, Director of the Loker Hydrocarbon Research Institute at the University of Southern California, discuss their life and work in chemistry. Both participants received the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, Professor Marcus in 1992 and Dr. Ola in 1994. Listen now, and don't forget to subscribe to get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast. Welcome to Pasadena, George. It's a pleasure, Edwin. <laughs> pleasure to see you again. George, uh, how did you get interested in chemistry? Well, to my best recollection, and my recollection may be not so sharp after no. all these years, I can't recollect ever being interested at all in sciences or chemistry till I finished high school. I had varied interest in, in topics ranging from languages, history, even philosophy. Uh, but at the end of, of World War II in a devastated little country, it struck me that I should choose something where you also can make a living. I come from Hungary, mm. and I don't know how many jobs, if any, were available for philosophers unknown young budding philosophers right. in Hungary. So uh, when I took my first course in chemistry, I fell in love with it. And I think what fascinated me was the wide scope. After all, chemistry is really a central science, which uh, allows you to reach from one end to the spectrum to the other. On one end, nature's wonderful large mm -hmm. molecule, the life, processes and so on, till the other end where, where chemists can make materials, pharmaceutical, synthetic plastics. So I'm still in love with chemistry after all this year. Now you say your first course, uh, was that college or did you have chemistry in high school? In other words, did you start getting interested That's in That's a good school? question. I tell you, I had chemistry in high school, but I can't remember it. Oh, okay. I can't remember my teacher either. On the other hand, I remember my physics teacher, who was a remarkable gentleman and who intrigued us greatly. He also carried out wonderful, simple experiments and was a very live character. And I understand many years later, he became a university professor of physics and introduced mm. in Hungary the first uh, television popular science programs. And what about mathematics? Did that come into well, your training a lot? Uh, yeah, I, I have gone to a very strict Catholic mm -hmm. uh, middle high school mm -hmm. combined, the Europeans called it gymnasium. Mm -hmm. And we had strict mathematics for, for eight years. Besides, but you didn't become a mathematician. I didn't. Even though Hungary is known for its mathematicians. It's right, but somebody said uh, people who don't have such a great talent in <laughs> mathematics go to chemistry <laughs> or say, other yeah. easier sciences. Yeah. 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 But I had a good, good mathematical yeah. training. Yeah. And how about you? Well, uh, uh, looking, looking back, um, uh, I enjoyed chemistry in high school, actually. I, I, in fact, I do remember my chemistry teacher. I also remember getting acid in my face because I added water and sulfuric in I the wrong direction. <laughs> no, the sulfuric, uh, yeah. Um, and I uh, remember the physics, and I think I enjoyed the uh, chemistry more. But uh, what I enjoyed the most, actually, were, uh, uh, was mathematics. And uh, for a while, I had wondered 
vaguely about going into mathematics. Um, but uh, I guess one factor was the job question, which uh, uh, I was told was, uh, was not so good. Another, though, was uh, somehow um, I think the chemistry was a little bit more my niche. Uh, in other words, I, I don't think I would have risen to uh, great heights in uh, mathematics, but knew enough mathematics that I could use it later in the chemistry. Um, the, um, uh, the decision, though, didn't have to be make, made until actually uh, college, and you know, actually not until second year college. But one thing I do remember the, the most is that um, in addition to enjoying mathematics as a child, I and I think many other scientists in, uh, in Canada and in the United States enjoyed construction sets, you know, erector sets and tinker toys and what have you. Um, I, I wonder if those were common at all in How about Europe chemi? at the time. How about chemistry? Well, yes, sir. I had a chemistry set. I had a laboratory in chemistry at home. The experiments I did were very crude experiments, but uh, uh, yeah, I, I did those. Um, well, anyways, um, uh, for whatever reason, I decided in, uh, in uh, second year college to uh, major in chemistry. I, I think there were a number of things. Uh, one was um, the uh, math option was tied there to physics. And uh, although I did well in physics, I, somehow I felt more at home in chemistry. And I think things worked out for the best because um, later on I was able to combine math, physics, and chemistry. And... Uh, Whereas I might well have been a, a third-rate physicist or a third-rate mathematician, uh, I don't think that was true in chemistry. And so, uh, uh, you know, I was able to apply the math and, and physics. I was able to enjoy that. But uh, it wasn't done all at once. For example, after getting my uh, uh, doctorate at McGill, which was an experimental work, because perhaps you remember or you know at the time there were no theoretical chemists in Canada at all. Um, they were only in the United States as far as North America was concerned. And so all of us did experimental work. We didn't even think about doing theoretical work. Uh, we didn't even think about where theories came from. Uh, maybe they were handed out from on high, but anyways we didn't think about that. And uh, it was only after going on a postdoctoral and experimental work, again, because there was no theory, uh, that after a while I felt very uncomfortable. I felt I wasn't using the mathematics that I enjoyed so much. And it was then that I decided to uh, make sort of a, 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 what was for me a dramatic step, namely to, um, even though I'd been trained as an experimentalist and had little theory, uh, decided to try for a theoretical postdoc in the U.S. And uh, there I went, and uh, uh, I think the, uh, things turned out for but me that that was a good choice. Isn't it really true that uh, mathematics really isn't a science? It's, it's a language, a fairly general language of the expression of science. Well, you know, that, uh, that there is an interesting question, doesn't it? How does one define a science? I mean, mathematics, um, if one defined a science as somehow being closely related to experiment, uh, closely related to the outside world, then uh, mathematics is more an, an interpretation of that. I mean, in order to interpret the outside world, you need mathematics. If one defined a science as something where you have certain uh, basic tenets, certain axioms, certain things that you start with, 
no matter what it is. I mean, you start with different things in different fields uh, and then work logically from there. Then I suppose you would consider uh, could consider it to be a science. On the other hand, both of us know that uh, science isn't just a question of cold logic starting from point A and going to point B. Uh, more often, the more exciting things are rambling from point A and ending up at point B, which is interesting. But isn't really science, uh, mankind, intellectual drive for understanding? Because the name science, scientia, coming from the Latin, really means knowledge. And once upon a time, uh, people could still cover uh, whatever knowledge or observation <coughs> mankind had. After all, the Greek philosopher or, or scholars uh, covered the whole spectrum. And it's only in more recent time where things became much more complicated, that uh, the world specialized. And uh, that's in a way is a pity. I mentioned that I had interest when I was growing up in things like history and philosophy. I still have. And you know, there's a very close relation with science. We really can't talk about science without its historical marker. Because after all, it was uh, not so long ago that uh, the best scholars or, or savants or who yeah. they were believed that the earth is flat. And we should be very careful not to go close to the edge because we may be falling off. And these were not madmen. It's only what little they knew or were able to observe led them this conclusion, which, of course, eventually changed. So yeah. in a way, I, I really feel that science is, is very closely interrelated with other intellectual activities or efforts of mankind. And yeah. people say frequently that scientists are in this special area, which is difficult to understand for most people, which has little relevance. I really don't agree. Yeah. Uh, in many universities, let us arts and sciences are lumped together in one big unit. <clears throat> and this, I don't think it's just an administrative way. After yeah. all, at least creative science, where uh, people try to, to express or understand in novel ways things, it's not so different from, from an artist drive to find a new expression. In fact, there, there are so many parallels, not only in art, I think, but also in history. In art, for example, of course, we all have different ways of doing our work. But uh, I know in my case, uh, I feel very akin to those artists who splash something on the canvas and then improve on it. I mean, the way I do theories is splash something down there in the form of some sort of a manuscript and then improve on it, improve on it, improve on it many, many times. So I think there are similar, uh, similar of course. And also, uh, uh, you know, the way one does some of these things, uh, you'd, you know, probably both of us would agree, you don't just logically go from one point to the other. You feel your way in part, that there, there are many possibilities, many directions you can go in or possible explanations, and you feel, you try this, you sense this, maybe without analyzing in complete detail, but just see if it has a semblance of being right. And, so I, I think there are similarities there. Too. There was a, a, a well-known philosopher of science whose name was Thomas Kuhn, who mm -hmm. taught at right. Berkeley and then at MIT <clears throat> for a long while. And in one of his best-known books, he put forward his views. 
And he said that science, most of science, and he said 99.9% yeah. of science is regular science. Now, this is based on what we know today, on established principle theories and so right. on. And it's solid and it's in a way predictable. And this is what most people like. Right. Because you can plan your program, you know right. that what you are going to do won't embarrass you. Right. It also helps you to get support because if you apply for support, right. Right. your peers look at it favorably and so on. And then he said that there is this very, very small number of, of rather crazy people who, who <clears throat> go their own way right. and who have crazy ideas. Most of them turn out to be completely wrong. But eventually, one of these, these ideas of the well-frequented path is resulting in what he called the paradigm shift or jump in mankind knowledge. And he called this revolutionary science. Now, I don't think that maybe revolutionary is the right way, but mm. I think that there is justification to, in science too, to try to let your imagination run a little and see where it leads you. Somewhere. Absolutely. In fact, uh, uh, an analogy that I have often used in, in talks to try to give a feeling for what it's like to sort of try something when you don't know what the answer is going to be, but it looks interesting, is... Uh, I don't know, do you ski, George? Or you I, did? Or, or I gave up many years ago okay. when my sons right. refused to ski with us anymore because we were such uh, so, poor skiers. All right. All right. Well, anyways, I still enjoy skiing. And the analogy, I think, that I, that I draw is supposing you're, maybe you've never had this experience. Maybe you're absolutely fearless. But sometimes I've been at the top of a hill where, which is far steeper than I felt comfortable with. And, uh, uh, I uh, uh, wondered, well, shall I go for it? Or, you know, you can't take the chairlift back down. And so you go for it. But that sort of feeling that uh, in the pit of your stomach is uh, the way uh, I know I sometimes feel and I assume probably you yeah. do when you're uh, barking on something where you don't know how it's going to work out, but it's interesting. Now, I can tell you only I was terrified on yeah. sea slopes and once we have seen the same slope in the summer, and it really shook me up because it looked such a gentle little slope. Oh, we've done but that too. But when you are on top of That's it, right. it looks different. We've done but that too. in science, maybe you see, when you embark on something really quite unknown, and you have even no idea uh, <laughs> whether the, the slope is very steep right. or not. You just have some curiosity, and you start to explore it. And if you would know more about it, you probably never would do it because there are so many good reasons you could think about why this is either hopeless or something you shouldn't do. But that's why I'm saying that man has this building curiosity. Yeah. And it's a wonderful thing. And I guess if we follow our curiosity sometimes, sometimes, mm. it can lead us mm. to interesting new areas. Yeah, certainly course, more than if you just sort of grind away at the same old thing with a slight variation. Now, of course, I guess people have this misguided idea that science really is so simple. Here are people who get even some recognition, even a Nobel Prize, so they think this is something which comes along in a, in a logical way. It's yeah. not. As no. you know, yeah. science is mostly disappointment. Yeah. You, you have these ideas in the morning, 
Right. And in the afternoon or a week later, you find out that this idea really isn't working at all. Well, I, I know that that's true in theoretical work. I'm delighted to hear that's true in organic it's, also. It's <laughs> much more in experimental yeah. work. Particularly yeah. if you yeah. try to explore the new. That's yeah. where the uh, Kuhn's regular science has its, uh, has its merit to many. Because if you do something which is predictable and safe, yeah. he used this word too, then your batting average is much better. On the other hand, the fun is less. Mm -hmm. Because sure. after all, doing something better than many people have done it before you, climbing a peak. Now, I don't know, I am not a mountain climber, Neither, but right. obviously climbers climb peaks because it's there. But it's a hell of a lot more, I think, of of an excitement to be first on the peak than be sure. the 10,000th individual who have climbed up the now well-marked path. Right, especially if there are ropes all the way. Yeah. <laughs> As there apparently are on the Eiger, I think, somebody said. Uh, you know. So what is your present interest, Rudy, well, in, uh, in exploring? All right, uh, an area that I've never worked in, in fact. I mean, I, I'm continuing to do work in areas I've worked in, but an area that I've never worked in. And this is this area of biological motors. And of course, now there's all sorts of structural information, you know, like the ATP synthase, but there are a number of others, rotor motors uh, and linear motors. There's, uh, as we both know, there's a lot of structural information that's become available and that is continually becoming available. And there's also a certain amount of kinetic information. And uh, a variety of people have been trying to put things together, and uh, I've sort of jumped into that uh, fray. Um, I probably I won't be able to accomplish anything. I'm I'm quite prepared for that, but I, I'm learning a lot in the process. And the idea of trying to juggle all of that information—I mean, it's a amazing the amount. Of, I mean, not only structural and what happens when. Uh, when this rotates and you know, various other things and uh, modern disputes, you know, what is the role of the role of uh, ion gradient versus potential gradient? Uh, at first, uh, for a long time, they assumed they're equivalent, but lately it's been shown that some experiments were not interpreted correctly and that uh, you, it's essential to have a potential field there. Of course, if you have an ion gradient, that can help. But trying to put it all together and work out a kinetic scheme for just how this gradient of potential and of ions across this membrane is linked to a rotation of part of the uh, of that biological motor, which in turn is linked to a conformational change up at the top, which opens and, re and closes and, uh, in the process, either forms uh, ATP from uh, ADP and inorganic phosphate or does the reverse you know, it's sort of a, it's a for me, it's fascinating because I've never worked on that kind of problem before. But the problem I have is uh, that there's so many publications coming out on experiments and new experiments and trying to assimilate it all. As you know, if you've been in a field for quite a while, you're more or less on top of it. You know just where everything lays. A new fact comes in, you know where to put it, what category to put it. But when you're entering a field, Trying to put them all together, it's sort of a, like a big jigsaw puzzle. It's true, other people have worked on it, but big jigsaw puzzle. And you're in the st still in the stage in your own mind of trying to fit things together 
to see if you can understand how all of those things are harnessed. Oh, this sounds very exciting. It is. And the trouble is, I'm yeah. spending a fair amount of time on it, and I have no idea how it's going to turn out. Wow. And I'm just a little afraid that, you know, this is not going to turn But anyway, it's interesting, though. I'm learning. Now, I always felt that exploring a field for a while is, is exciting. <clears throat> After a while, as you said, we probably know as much as anybody else. And maybe it's a time to, to have a little shift and right. try to, to do something else and new. And as you said, uh, it's risky, but at our age, I think we can afford some, well, yeah, some risk. That's because, right, yeah. uh, let me say maybe briefly what, what I'm interested in. Yes, I'd like to hear that. Now, I, I'm a chemist. I really dislike being put in little categories. That's Chemi a pretty big category. That's, that's a pretty big category. But chemists are, are put in the subcategories. Sure, sure. Yeah. Some who are mostly interested in compounds of carbons or mm -hmm. carbon and hydrogen are called organic chemists. And it's a very big field. And Mother Nature also has its own wonderful chemistry. Other chemists explore other elements and their compounds. They are called inorganic chemists, also I never could really appreciate where is the dividing line. Well, in uh, fact, it's probably merged a bit, hasn't it? Yeah. And, of course, then uh, <clears throat> people who are more physically minded uh, are interested in, in studying and understanding the physical aspects and theory and so on. And people analytically minded do wonderful spectroscopy and other methods. Yeah. But to me, chemistry always was an entity, uh, <clears throat> even theory, but I must modify. By no means do I consider myself a theoretical chemist. But now we can all do calculations right. of chemistry, right. Right. because wonderful programs are right. available, right. and even people who are not trained in, in this area can enjoy it as a wonderful sure. tool. Sure. So I am classified the chemist who has interest all this in, in carbon compound. Now, one of the intriguing or fundamental aspects of the chemistry of, of carbon compounds was formulated in the middle of the last century by the German chemist Kekulé, who realized that carbon has this ability to bind simultaneously to not more than four other atoms mm. or groups. So anyhow, without going into great detail, I was very much interested in a certain stage of my career to study the positively charged ions of, of carbon. Did that are... start from your polymer interest? I mean, no, cationic all... polymerization, or it was, it was independent it was of that? One, one, many, many. Yeah. I started really as a natural product chemist. Ah, I see. Okay. I am the scientific grandson of one Emil Fischer, who was probably the greatest organic chemist of the 20th century, mm -hmm. and who mm -hmm. single-handedly yeah. really started also biochemistry. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He then also gave a weight because he believed that no quote-unquote decent chemist should deal with any type of compound which you can't separate crystallize and mm. analyze. Of mm. course, at the time, this yeah. was very limited. Yeah. And of course, many of nature's wonderful large molecules sure. are not falling into this. Right. But my interest carried me from this mm. a long way. Mm -hmm. And I was lucky in my work to, 
to realize that carbon in some situation, particularly if it's electron deficient, mm -hmm. can bind simultaneously to five neighboring atoms or groups, <laughs> or in some mm -hmm. cases mm -hmm. six. Mm. And recently, we was able to show even to seven. Was that while you were still in Canada, or was that after you moved to no, the U.S.? No, it, it started in, in my career in Canada, uh -huh. working in an industrial right, laboratory. Right, sure. And uh, that was quite, quite interesting, mm. because obviously industry is paying you to do something uh, which is of primary interest to them. Sure. But I always was a, a fairly uh, hard worker. And I made an arrangement with my lab director. They expected anyhow people only to be there for 40 mm -hmm. hours. Yeah. And if you were working, I never considered doing chemistry work. Yeah, but sure. if you were there, say, for 80 or 90 hours, I got some consent that in my free time, I can pursue some of the things Good. I was interested in. As yeah, it turns well, out, well. these positively charged ions of carbons were also of major uh, significance to my employer, the Dow Chemical Company. Dow was making uh, mm -hmm. polystyrene on a very large mm -hmm. scale. And this is made by combining benzene and ethylene to ethyl benzene. Mm -hmm. And this goes through an ionic process. And in this enormous reactor, they were doing this reaction using aluminum chloride as a catalyst. They used up to 20-25% of aluminum chloride, which amounted to hundreds and hundreds of metric tons. Hmm. And as a young guy, I started to ask uh, questions. One question was that if this aluminum chloride is a catalyst, and the catalyst mm -hmm. is not supposed to take part in right. a chemical reaction. Why do they need this <clears throat> enormous amount of aluminum chloride mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. all the time in the reactors? You mean why was it being consumed or something? No, they need no. that huge oh, amount yeah. and I they see. need that continuously to Instead add. Instead of just a small amount for, yeah. for usually. So for if, you, if you have in reactors hundreds mm. of tons of, yeah. of a material, there must be some reason for it. Right. So I got my answer. I was told, young oh. man, we do it this way because it's the way it works. Huh. And of course, it's very difficult to, yeah. to argue with. But eventually, uh, I found out what's going on. And what's going on was that in these huge reactors, a, a layer called the red oil was formed, which was mm. known for a long while. Mm. But this uh, viscous colored layer mm -hmm. was nothing else than a mixture of ions. Now, of course, the positive huh. ions were what I now call carbocations. Huh. But huh. of course, in the condensed state, for all, each positive ion, you need a negative ion, right. a contra-ion. Oh, so this fair. enormous tonnage of aluminum chloride huh. was bound as the anion. Huh. And the anion, the tetrachloroaluminate anion, of course, has no catalytic activity at all. It provided a medium, yeah. an ionic medium in which this reaction... So were you able to switch to no, something else? No, but we were or? able to make improvements. Uh -huh. Mm -hmm. uh, which right. put me in good standing with my employer. And uh, if you do something sure. which improves yeah. even slightly a large industrial process, right. it's appreciated. Right. 
And as a fringe benefit, I was able to, to continue my, my work further. So that's why I got very much involved in this. And I'm still doing it, but with different other aspects. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's a wonderful thing of chemistry, that <clears throat> some of the discoveries you are lucky to come across. Yeah. The fact that carbon can have a, a five-coordinated or bonded state never crossed my mind that this can have any mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. practical right. application right. or significance. Right. Right. However, years later, this was the key. Right. Or you can activate right. with acid catalysis mm -hmm. uh, compounds which were previously considered chemically uh, non-reactive, at least non-reactive, under what we call ionic conditions. Is this where your super acids come in to activate? Or? Yes, yeah. this, these were acids yeah. which, which needed. If you yeah. take, say, a simple hydrocarbon, yeah. these are compounds of carbon and hydrogen, right. methane is the simplest. Mm -hmm saturated right. CH4, one carbon bound to four hydrogen. Right. That's a major ingredient of yeah. natural gas. Right. Now, when I grew up, and I guess a long time after, maybe even now in some textbook yeah. of organic chemistry, the first chapter deals, which was called paraffin. Mm -hmm. Paraffin right. means paromaphenis, lack of reactivity. Now, of course, this mm. is not true because mm -hmm. you can burn them. Yeah. We burn natural gas, and of course, combustion is a radical chain process. Yeah. But you couldn't do usual ionic reactions, substitution reactions, yeah. and so on. Yeah. And with this very high mm -hmm. acidity system, which yeah. we were lucky to get involved, and you mentioned superacids, yeah. yeah. we now know acid systems. Yeah. which have acidities which are trillion times yeah. stronger than sulfuric acid, battery acid. Yeah. Now, I'm telling you big numbers. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting how we get interested in different things. You mentioned how you got interested in the, the problem that later became sort of your world-famous work. And in my case, it was, uh, it was different. In the case of electron transfer, uh, I wasn't trying to immediately to solve any problem or anything like that. In fact, I didn't know anything about electron transfer reactions. I just happened to read a paper, uh, Bill Libby, one of these wild ideas, trying to explain some of the results on rates of electron transfer reaction. And his idea, bringing in the Frank Condon principle, sounded great. And that's what excited me, because I'd never seen it applied to a chemical reaction before. But then when I looked at the details of his calculation, and this is where the math and physics came in, there seemed to be something not quite right. I mean, he had a back-of-the-envelope calculation on the barrier. And it was only then in trying to figure out what was wrong with it, I mean, which I just felt intuitively. I didn't know there was something wrong with it. And then reason what was missing in his argument, even though part of it was absolutely right, I realized what was missing in his argument, you know, the need for, in order for an electron transfer reaction to occur, for something to happen beforehand, fluctuations of the environment and of the bonds to reach the transition state, not uh, just you have a sudden electron jump and you actually violate energy conservation. That was what was wrong with his argument is when I looked at it. And so it just came about, my own interest in electron just came about trying to understand some 
puzzle in some paper that was designed to explain some data. And from that, you know, work of mine for the next 10 years was sort of actively involved with trying to elaborate on that. You know, but, it's interesting you mentioned Bill Libby. Yeah. Because, you know, with this very acidic, super acidic system, we yeah. eventually managed to prove that in the condensed state you can take methane and protonate it to CH5+, huh. Huh. Mm -hmm. which looked like a, a very strange species after yeah. I mentioned that organic right. chemists happily lived for nearly 150 years right. with four as the limiting number. Uh -huh. Now, CH5 plus isn't violating the octopus. No, 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 no. It just says that there is nothing in theory which says the two atoms can be bound together by an electron pair right. and not three. Right. Now, uh, interestingly, Bill Libby, many years ago, had a very interesting paper where he described that he was able to polymerize methane by radiation. And in order to explain it, he suggested this involves radical initiation transfer, but eventually CH5 is formed. Uh -huh. by an uh -huh. entirely different uh -huh. way. Uh -huh. So that's, that's the intriguing yeah. thing in chemistry yeah. that sometimes things come together. Now, right. what I am now very much interested in is that I spend a good time of my career in studying the chemistry of hydrocarbons. And I said natural gas is mm. basically methane. And petroleum is a complex mixture of all kinds of hydrocarbons. And these are a wonderful gift for Mother Nature to mankind. And the Industrial Revolution, which just a little more than 200 yeah. years ago started, yeah. was initially fueled by coal. Then in the second part of the 19th century, men started to use petroleum and natural gas. And in the 20th century, it became a major part, mm -hmm. both by burning it uh, to, to generate electricity as an energy source, but also as a raw material for all man-made compounds. Now, the trouble is that this gift of nature won't last forever. Right. And right. we are also presently already passing 6 billion inhabitants of planet Earth. And this causes enormous problems, because if you have an enormously increasing need mm -hmm. and the limited supply, which is not renewable on the human time scale, yeah. you will face problems. Now, most people don't like to think about it. Mm -hmm. If you, you give some lectures and mention this, the answer generally is, oh, scientists were always wrong. They predicted that we are going to run out of oil and gas. And it's, there mm -hmm. is some truth in it. Mm -hmm. And statistics shows that today, we have substantially more oil and gas reserves than we supposed to have yeah, 50 sure. years ago. Now, the only trouble is that the population also increased enormously. Right. When the 20th century started, there was only a billion and a half inhabitants of Earth. Now we are 6 billion, and depending whether you are an optimist or a pessimist, we are told that sometimes in this century we will reach 10 billion. So right. something will need to be done. Right. And uh, interestingly, yeah. very few people are interested in this. Well, I'm interested, George, and I hope that both our quests are successful yeah. so, so that we can have this conversation again 
Um, so what, but, what, what we are really pursuing is that whenever you burn any carbon-containing compound, mm. the carbon uh, is transformed into carbon dioxide mm. and the hydrogen into water. Mm. So we are now little factories exhaling carbon dioxide. Now, Mother Nature can recycle this in photosynthesis, mm. but this gives only plant life. And hydrocarbon forms in a very, very long time scale. So we are, we are involved now in chemical ways to recycle carbon dioxide directly into hydrocarbons and hydrocarbon fuels and their products. And that's a very intriguing project. Now, of it's course, an you, important need, project. Yeah. you need energy for yeah. this, and we are yeah. no miracle makers. But man will solve its energy question. Yeah probably by safer use of atomic mm. energy, both making it safe and disposing byproduct. So it's a real challenge to try to do something with your chemistry, which is new, right. and it may have even some use. And we both find excitement. That's, That's great. Right. I think. Good talking with you, George. It was a real pleasure. <laughs> I enjoyed it. Want more episodes like this? Don't forget to subscribe and get updates each week for the Free to Choose Media Podcast.